Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, September the 19th, 2023, a never-ending Tuesday, the 19th. Finally ending. It's quite a big week this week for uh, FT readers, Financial Times readers, and people who have been enjoying my series of interviews with the authors on the long list for their business book of the year. That long list is going to become a short list on Thursday from uh, 15 books, or uh, we're going to have, I don't know, five, six. It'll be interesting. We've done most of the interviews actually uh and the theme i think is mostly on tech and the way in which tech is changing the world last week i did an interview with simon johnson a very distinguished british economist at mit his book power and progress 1000 year uh 1000 year struggle over technology and prosperity is a broad historical analysis cobalt red with sit siddharth Kar is how we're recreating a slave economy in in a you know, neo-slave economy in the congo because of our lust for batteries to power our smartphones uh did a show with Kashmir hill yesterday your face belongs to us a new kind of surveillance in which technology knows everything about us including exactly how we look um did a show on the case for good jobs uh in our age of ai uh, how that's going to change the world, uh, and uh, many others, including one on tokens and cryptocurrency, the coming wave with Mustafa Suleiman, the co-founder of DeepMind on the impact of AI. And the final interview brings it all together. Brian Merchant's been on the show before. He's a tech journalist based in uh, Los Angeles, just south of where I am. And he has a new book out, Blood in the Machine, the origins of the rebellion against big tech, which focuses on the rebellion in the first machine age, the so-called Luddite rebellion. The book is out next week, but it's already on the long list. So congratulations, Brian. Last time we talked, you were on the show. Um, I know uh, uh, the book wasn't even out yet. And we talked about the end of the Silicon Valley myth. Uh, and now we can talk your book. So congratulations. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, Brian, I, I know it's a bit neat, but would it be fair to say that a lot of what the Luddites rebelled against in the beginning of the 19th century um, is now being repeated in the early part of the 21st century? Is, is history repeating itself? Yeah. You know, you always got to be a little bit careful and deploy some caveats but i think it's fair to say that we're seeing a lot of similarities um both in kind of the economic conditions uh that kind of undergird this moment of uh rapid technological development and uh and sort of the nature of that development as well so we're seeing this moment where we've had trends towards uh some pretty worrying levels of inequality um and at the same time, we're now seeing uh, a lot of uh, software automation and AI and uh, tech companies trying to use sort of 
far-reaching uh, solutions to find efficiencies that may prove quite disruptive. So those two things kind of converging at this moment uh, does make me worry that uh, we may see some, uh, some bits of history repeating itself. The word, as I said at the beginning, the word that's most associated with the, the, the rebellion against the first machine age in the beginning of the 19th century in England, the English textile workers was Luddites. It's a word now that's entered the common vocabulary. Anyone who criticizes tech now is called a Luddite. What does the word really mean, Brian? Well, it was a real word, and it comes from this kind of avatar of this, this workers' movement um, who, who were known as Luddites at the time. So Ned Ludd was uh, a figure, probably apocryphal, who was this, uh, he was supposed to be this apprentice worker who was learning the, the stocking, uh, the, the knitting trade outside of Nottingham. Um, and the legend goes is that he was working too slowly for his master's liking. So his master had him whipped, uh, which naturally infuriated the young boy who then smashed the machine uh, that he had been forced to work with a hammer and fled off into Sherwood Forest. So a lot of things you can sort of intuit or, or, or draw on there. You know, this was taking place in the same exact um, kind of region as Robin Hood. So there's a real um, sort of culture and predisposition for sort of uh, for, for dissent and, and, uh, um, and, and the end kind of rebellion. So when those conditions that I talked about up top sort of become intolerable and in the very beginning of the industrial revolution you see uh some of the most ambitious uh entrepreneurs and factory owners start really really hitting the gas on on automation on the division of labor on building factories on trying to force this movement away from domestic industry where you might have worked at home with your loom with your family um, had a lot of autonomy into this into this windowless poorly ventilated factory where you're working uh, for an overseer um, and those cloth workers who did not want to see this happen who had seen their wages falling because of factory owners were kind of um, relentlessly adopting this machinery and uh, parliament had kind of thrown out all the regulations that would have prevented that from happening uh, so it was really sort of just really free trade fundamentalism kind of going on free market uh, economy just there's no no protections for these workers and no one was listening to them so kind of as a tactic of last resort they adopted this moniker of uh, Ned Ludd um, and as a kind of an avatar or we might think of him as a meme today and they started this rebellion where they fought back by um, targeting the factory owners who had uh, deployed the automated machinery. They would calculate how many jobs that factory had had displaced, how many people it had left hungry. They'd send them a letter and say, take down these machines or you're going to get a visit from Ned Ludd's army. Um, and if he didn't, uh, sure enough, they would show up and they would sort of infiltrate the factory, either holding the overseer at gunpoint or just kind of slipping in through a window and demolishing the automating machineries uh, with, a, with a sledgehammer. It's a fascinating narrative, of course, what they were rebelling against. The word didn't exist at the time, but it's what we call now neoliberalism. And Marx wrote about it in the middle of the 19th century. I hadn't actually, I have to admit, I always thought uh, Ned Ludd was a real person. But you're saying that there may not have even been a Ned Ludd? 
There may not have been. I mean, we don't know for sure. There's no record of there being a real Ned Ludd. And the first kind of known written reference to to him shows up um, in 1811, at the end of 1811, after kind of some of the first disturbances uh, had occurred. There's a, there's a letter um, in, I think, the Nottingham uh, review or the Nottingham Journal sort of uh, that's kind of explains the origins and it seems just as likely that either this was kind of a legend that uh, that had been kind of floating around for a while and they kind of glommed onto it and, and used it as an organizing principle um, or they made it up to suit their purposes as sort of an origin story like like Robin Hood but yeah there's no real evidence that I mean he, it could have been it could have also been a real person who this story was told about and it was you know, handed down through the through the generations. It was it was supposed to have happened over twenty years ago. Um, so it either 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 way, it was it was like of 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 dubious sort of uh, origin, I guess. But but it was it was something that they could sort of use as a as a figurehead, as again, kind of as a meme. And it made it really handy for the movement because it was not a centrally organized uh, sort of, uh, you know, operation. Yeah, it was web three, Brian, was it before web three? It was <laughs> a DAO. Well, yeah, more, it was more, more Occupy Wall Street than web three, but it's the same, same kind of principle, right? If you were in Manchester, you know, miles and miles away from Nottingham and you had grievances about a particular piece of machinery that was being used by factory bosses uh, who were arguing that if they had this machine, they could pay you less then you could adopt the, you know, the, the, the handle of Ned Ludd. You could sign your threatening letter to the factory owner, uh, General Ludd or King Ludd. And so, you know, it was, it was, uh, you know, Manchester in, in Lancashire. It was the West Riding uh, of Yorkshire and it was uh, Nottingham. That's kind that of- That was the triangle for right, people yeah. who are familiar with the geography of England. Can we be clear about where the industrial revolution was at this point i don't mean geographically but conceptually yeah. we're not talking about an industrial revolution of large factories are we we're talking about the beginnings the earliest beginnings of automation from uh, a hand worker economy to something more mechanized right yeah it was not yet what you picture when you picture the industrial revolution or, what marx described yeah. in communist manifesto 50 or 30 years right. later rows and rows of factories and just like you know smog choked skies there was a little bit of that and it was more you know the, the luddites are traditionally thought of as just trying to smash the machinery and we can talk about more about you know how the myth of of the Luddites has kind of, you know, taken a turn and, and you know, it has, be, has all these derogatory connotations. Uh, but they were as much fighting uh, the, the emergence of the factory system as they were any particular piece of machinery. Right. And there were already exa good examples of the, of the factory. They weren't sort of everywhere. Most, uh, most people, especially in, in rural England, would not have a factory in their town. But there were enough examples of factory, uh, particularly uh, Richard Arkwright, who had, who had patented the water frame and was sort of automating the process of, of, of churning out sort of like the yarn. The, uh, and he was pumping out huge volumes of it. He had some big factories that were, you know, he's often called the father of the factory for that reason. Um, so they were notorious, right? They were, they, it was well known that there was something 
that was the manufactory or the factory that was that was emerging and the stories going around that a lot of the workmen had heard were really grim and just they sort of described a mode of work an organization of work where they would be forced to quote stand at the command they they hated this idea of having to stand at their command the being the factory owner or the overseer uh, as opposed to being able to sort of control the flow of their you daily. can blame them right right nobody I, wants to stand and command yeah i mean it's another parallel that i didn't necessarily foresee kind of emerging as i was writing this book but it's yeah we right now we're seeing all this protest about sort of uh, going back into the office um, as opposed to working remotely. Uh, and, and that's driven by a lot of these same impulses. Mm. I, I want to get to the, 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 the contemporary relevance actually in the second half. Sure. Uh, yeah. and, and I hadn't actually thought of the return to the office, but that's a really interesting one. Yeah. So, Brian, Marx, I think, and I can't remember where he wrote about the Luddites, but he wrote quite extensively wasn't a big fan. I think he saw them as reactionaries against industrialization. He treated them as the aristocracy of the hand workers. Was this an aristocracy or was it an underclass or was it both or neither? Yeah, it was both. Yeah, Marx doesn't, as far as I know, uh, talk a whole lot about the Luddites, except, uh, as you say, to kind of... Um, uh, to. I, he doesn't deride them fully, but he thinks that they were wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, he sees them as the pre-industrial working class, the heroes of history in his narrative. His problem, I think, was with the fact that they were, pro you know, in his kind of vision for the evolution of of, of industry. And, and once, you know, techno technology would have to progress to a certain point to kind of ripen until it would be ready to be kind of seized by uh, by the proletariat, right? So he saw the Luddites kind of as standing in the way of, you know, that, that he, his solution was to sort of not impede the, 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 the technological development. And there's a lot of sort of, we don't need to go into here, but there's a lot of sort of contemporary debate, even among Marxists and um, anti-Marxists about sort of where Luddism sort of is situated in, in that history. Um, but to answer the question, it was a sort of a combination of there were truly impoverished um, workers who had been either made redundant by uh, a piece of machinery or whose working conditions had been degraded uh, by uh, by by sort of by the local factory owners uh, and, and the competition that they faced. Just to drill into it for a second, what was happening was the, the local sort of. Um, uh, you know, these again, they're not huge factory. We're not talking, you know, 10 story gargantuan. They're 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 just organized operations with more automated machinery sort of. How many people might be in a building? 10, 15? You know, the average, it's so hard to say there were there were, you know, there were factories at the time that did have over 100 people, but most of them probably had had closer to, to between like 20 and 50. And was there an entrepreneurial class, a new entrepreneurial class that tended to be rather hostile to the old social order and the aristocracy? So it's another really interesting question because it was far from uniform. Um, there were, again, a sliver of uh, of the group of of sort of the the um, factory owning or machine owning class that that could be described as really. 
um, aggressive, recognizing that they could profit greatly by dividing labor, by investing in machinery, by squeezing the local communities. Also important to note, these are small, these are relatively small uh, communities that economies aren't terribly diversified. So when you automate a job, you're automating a you know, a big chunk of the available employment opportunity where someone will either have to either go work in the factory and the job that you automated or, you know, try to maybe leave town or you don't have a lot of options. So it really was, as the Luddites would say, stealing the bread out of someone's mouth. So there's only a handful of people who would really do that sort of aggressively. Some in the book that I detail are folks like William Horsfall or, um, or Cartwright who would really, their aspiration really was to sort of to, to to push um you know wages down to maximize yeah, anyway they're the, the the stereotypical evil bourgeoisie that marx wrote about kind of the tech yeah or the tech titans today they weren't necessarily right, the, the bezos is in the masks and the andreessen's right and when they do that of course then everybody else has to has to automate themselves to catch up so there were a lot of merchants of sort of master weavers who had small shops that were just kind of looking at the economic reality and saying, I think I have to buy this machinery if I want to compete on price. Uh, you know, there was that real FOMO going around even then. So you see all these entrepreneurs who are kind of dragged, kicking and screaming uh, into the industrial revolution. Because uh, were they making, was it mostly the manufacturing, the hand weaving or the industrial manufacturing of clothing? Uh, it, yeah, it was cloth and clothing, you know, so again, regionally different in, in Huddersfield, in, in the West Riding, it was a big wool. Uh, yeah, that was the heart of the woolen industry. Heart of the woolen industry. Manchester was cotton um, and, and, and Nottingham was, was knit goods and lace. Um, so stockings, they would be making a lot of stockings. So it was a lot of clothing and, you know, wool sweaters um, raw cloth that, that would be shipped elsewhere, blankets. So, um, and, you know, this was, you know, at the time, this was the biggest sort of industrial uh, cloth. This was the beginning of the, of the world. Of modernity. Yeah. This was the beginning of the industrial age. Yeah. How extensive was the railway system? Back you know, it, it was being built out. Um, it was, it was starting to be built out so but more uh, you saw work being done you being done to sort of build the canals that could uh move coal so coal mining was also really starting to begin because um it was used to to turn steam engines and in in steamships so all these things are beginning at this at this stage and an interesting part about the luddite uprising is as i mentioned before it was as much of a protest of this new mode of work this new sort of order mm. where gonna have to be working in factories and even though uh a lot of the workers like say the colliers people working the coal industry they obviously only stood to benefit uh theoretically from the expansion of the industrial revolution but they would join the luddite uprisings they would join with the the cloth workers you know shoemakers would join even though they weren't immediately at risk of being automated because they it was the show of solidarity against this emergent sort of economic regime neoliberalism yes but also more specifically the factory system and standing at their command so it was and it was a new kind of economy i, I... Yeah. slightly facetious in the use of the term neoliberalism oh, was the free market and then one of the more interesting aspects uh, and this is i think relevant for our own age and i want to take a break after this uh, this question uh, brian but 
this caught the imagination of an intellectual class, quite a conservative romantic one, uh, Byron, for example, poets, people who believed in an idyllic rural world or a, a laboring world. What kind of reception did the Luddites get? Obviously, the state wasn't thrilled, but were there a number of, of intellectuals who were inspired and enthusiastic about this rebellion? Yeah, uh, Byron is the is the biggest one um, who he also sort of just coincidentally was about to become, you know, the most famous poet in the world. He 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 publishes his uh, major work um, at the same time uh, as as sort of the the Luddites are, are, are sort of really picking up steam and he is also a lord. So he's expected to. Um, you know, deliver speeches or weigh in on on matters of of, of government, uh, and the Luddite up, uprising was sort of the uh, biggest issue in a lot of parts of England at the time. And the state had, like you said, was not thrilled. They were so not thrilled that they were moving to make it a capital crime to to destroy a piece of uh, capital equipment. So. They had a bill in uh, in Parliament that would you know make it punishable by death if you were a machine breaker. Um, and Byron, I think, both sensing an opportunity to kind of give a performance, but also because he was from the Notting Nottingham area, he was from north of north of Nottingham at Newstead Abbey, where where he grew up. Um, and so he had seen firsthand uh, the suffering of a lot of the, the, the poor, impoverished weavers and the, the outbreaks of, um, of Luddism in real time. So he makes it his mission to kind of defend them against this, um, this motion to, to make machine breaking a capital crime. And he delivers probably the most famous actually easily the most famous sort of public speech in defense of, of the Luddites in front of parliament. And it's this big booming speech and, you know, it gets reprinted in, in, in newspapers and that kind of thing. Um, and it really does sort of put some wind behind the Luddite sales because they were really, really popular. Uh, you know, the working people were really supportive of the Luddites and would come out and cheer them in the streets if they were brazen enough to do their machine breaking raids by day. Um, and, and popular sentiment was. Uh -huh. I mean, it's it's incredibly ironic about Byron, given that his daughter was Ada Lovelace, Ada Lovelace, the woman who invented software, um, probably the most influential computer scientist in history, uh, or mathematician at least. Um, how? Two quick questions, then I do want to go to a break. How extensive was the Luddite rebellion? It was quite extensive. Um, you know, like it was so it was, again, unusual because it wasn't a well organized or sort of, uh, you know, campaign. It would it would spring up in in fits and starts and outbursts. But for a while, you know, there was an attack on a factory nearly every single day. And again, it spanned from Nottingham to uh, Manchester to, to York um, and in and, and Leeds. And there are, you know, thousands of machines being destroyed. Uh, you know, I tried to do the, 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 you know, the trans to translate the dollar amounts. It's really hard to do, but just millions and millions of dollars of, of capital equipment destroyed. Um, it, and we, we tend to look forward to make it relevant for our second machine age. And I want to get to that after the break. But of course, there was a long tradition of, of rural rebellion in England. So I'm guessing 
that a lot of the interest was historical in, in the UK in terms of traditions of rebellion against injustice? Yeah, I mean, it was usually, you know, out of it was a usually sort of a tactic of last resort because uh, it was often illegal to form combinations or unions as we describe them today. Um, it was often, uh, you know, there it wasn't a democracy, right? So you couldn't, you know, write a letter to your representative or vote out a representative who didn't uh, support your interests. So there were not always a lot of options on the table. So, you know, as historians have called what they did collective bargaining by riot. And it had happened before a number of times and, and sometimes in, in dramatic fashion, but never in this sort of concerted daily TikTok sort of organized under the umbrella of, of one major figure and encompassing whole regions. So it was kind of maybe the, the apex of this kind of rebellion. Uh, I like that phrase, collective bargaining by Ryan. Finally, before we go to the break, how did it end, Brian? Did it make any difference? Did anything change because of these, these spontaneous uprisings? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the Luddites were forcibly put down. Uh, it was quite a violent end to their uh, rebellion. The state, you know, did pass that law, despite what Byron, you know, tried to protest. You know, it didn't matter in the end. So it became a, a crime punishable by death to, to break a machine. Um, and the state you know, s deployed troops by the thousands. It was the largest domestic military occupation in, in England's history, I th maybe to this day, um, certainly at the time. So there was no police force at that point, was there? Yeah, it wasn't. It was sort of, uh, it was a little bit ad hoc. You'd have magistrates that would, that, that had, you had watch and ward uh, acts in, in place where you, the, uh, a magistrate could basically compel a local person to serve as a, as a as a constable or a or a, a temporary police force. So, but there were also mercenaries uh, that the entrepreneurs would hire. So you'd have British troops, mercenaries, whoever the magistrate had tapped, and they were all sort of guarding the the factories. Um, which it's an interesting way you can look at it. They were kind of like the front lines of the industrial revolution, um, and they were being sort of you know shepherded in, in, into being by by the state by force um, and. In the end, the Luddites, you know, cannot overcome that. Uh, they there's some large riots. A bunch of Luddites get gunned down in the street. Um, the Luddites get frustrated, and a few of them assassinate a, a factory owner. Public sentiment turns against them, and then the state hauls in dozens of them for kind of show trials and, and hangs them at York Castle. Um, so it ends badly for those Luddites, but a few important lessons emerge. One, in the short term, they did manage to very uh, successfully raise wages and living conditions. One reason they were so cheered uh, at the time, because um, it showed that this show of force was something to be reckoned with. Um, so a lot of factory owners, ra rather than face the trouble, restored wages to what they were before the machinery. They, you know, m they improved conditions and tried to meet some of the demands. More long term, it's sort of a lot of historians argue that it kind of laid the, the groundwork for both future movements that would adopt these tactics more sec more successfully and towards sort of the path of, uh, of reform. So you couldn't, you know, form a union at the time, but there were reform acts sort of underway for the next 10 years until 
what were called the Combination Acts that prevented the forming of a union were, were overthrown. And that's part of the lineage of the Luddites as well. And more, by and large, it also sort of injects this cultural element that shows people that there is a large subsection of society that isn't just willing to roll over and let entrepreneurs or industrialists deploy whatever technology they want recklessly, carelessly. And the most sort of, you know, still living, still breathing example of that is, is Frankenstein. And Frankenstein was inspired in part directly by the Luddite uh, uprising. You know, the last Luddites, the very last Luddites were being hung right as Mary Shelley was writing. Mary Shelley was connected with Byron as well. Yep. He, she, she was, uh, she was sort of, you know, infamously they met in Geneva and they spent a long time sort of trading yeah. philosophy and stories. But Percy Shelley was a huge Luddite uh, supporter, and he even sent money to the families of the hanged Luddites um, uh, after after those trials uh, went so poorly. So he was a direct, even more so. He wasn't as famous as Byron, so Byron had more impact, but Percy Shelley was maybe an even more sort of ardent supporter. And a lot of that, you know, Mary Shelley took in and sort of made her own and and when she was writing Frankenstein. It's great stuff, Brian. Uh, I'm not surprised you're on the long list. Blood in the Machine by Brian Merchant, a really important book about the origins of the Rebellion Against Big Tech, a history book on the early 19th century rebellion against industrialization, uh, the first machine age. We're going to take a short break now, Brian, um, thanking our sponsor, uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. And after the break, I, I want to talk about uh, the relevance of the Luddites in our second machine age, in the age of AI. Um, Brian uh, Brian's day job is as a tech journalist so he's given a lot of thought to this so don't go away anyone we'll be back in a couple of seconds beyond the news the noise there is nuance insight liberties it's not just a journal of ideas it's a meteor of intelligent substance it's the place to be for engaged citizens politics opinion substance liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought a quarterly of urgency of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. You can even subscribe online to the physical product. We are talking with Brian Merchant, a Los Angeles-based technology journalist, and the author of the FT, uh, Business Book of the Year, Longlisted, Blood in the machine. So let's fast forward, Brian, to today, to the 2020s. I mean, obviously, there's some broad relevance, reaction against change and new technology. But what specifically can we learn or perhaps not learn from uh, the Luddite rebellion in the 20s, with uh, in the 2020s, with AI uh, more than now on the horizon, actually a reality and open AI and this threat to many of our jobs? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot to talk about there. Uh, so the, when when I was writing the book, um, the biggest sort of point of reference to me was uh, what was sort of this emergent gig work economy where mm. you had companies like Uber and Lyft and Instacart and DoorDash um, really pushing this new 
um, kind of algorithmically organized mode of work, where in a lot of ways, um, that overseer that the Luddites didn't want to stand at their command of, uh, has now even become even sort of less accountable and more opaque. And it's in, it's, it's quite literally an app a lot of the time. So your boss is now an app and it, you're at its whims, whether you're fired or deactivated, as they say, um, you can't, you know, negotiate for, uh, different wages. It just is what the app tells you it is. Um, and a lot of these, uh, gig workers have had a really tough time, you know, on both ends of the equation, both the work that is being disrupted by the gig work regime and the new sort of, uh, sort of, uh, group of gig workers that has grown to be millions of strong, um, are suffering a lot of the same, uh, difficulties and indignities that the Luddites were suffering at the time. Um, but then I finished the book and, you know, lo and behold, we see the generative AI boom. And in some ways that's an even more precise uh, corollary in the fact that we have this automating technology, it's software automation, um, and it's really aimed at a, at a skilled industry. It's, 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 it's aimed at sort of you wouldn't say replace none of the or few of the uh, executives or the, the companies themselves would describe it as aimed at replacing artists, copywriters, uh, creative workers, coders. But that's essentially um, what what the fear is and, and what the anxiety uh, over this technology is. And it's so now we're seeing a lot of these parallels really, really drill home because there are a lot of on one end, uh, more precarious uh, creative workers like freelance illustrators, freelance copywriters uh, who are already feeling the squeeze uh, and, and are hearing from, you know, uh, clients that they used to work for that that work has been transitioned over to MidJourney or uh, ChatGPT is being used to replace this role. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, so, so those those precarious, uh, you know, workers are, are, you know, a lot like sort of the the less uh, secure uh, end of the Luddite spectrum where you you had sort of the framework knitters who were already really suffering by the time automation came along and they were in a bad spot and it really just kind of you know, knocked them out um, to the other side. What you were talking about earlier as being sort of the more labor aristocracy where you have um, the you have uh, screenwriters and and uh, and actors part of the wga and the sag unions over here and one of their key demands is to not let you know studio executives replace them or their work with with ai um and to me it's a very kind of laditic demand um and it and, and quite it quite rightfully so um and it, and the, the corollaries extend even beyond that where then the, a lot of the machinery could not successfully reproduce the work that uh, that a skilled uh, cloth worker could do. It could do the job, it could, but a shoddier job, and produce more. So they made up for what they could uh, offer, uh, you know, the, uh, offer a garment for uh, by making more of them. Classic story, mass production, um, and the and the luddites uh, or the cloth workers couldn't keep up. Today, the studios know that they can't, you know press a button and a script is going to come out that'll be ready to shoot. 
they know that they're going to have to still hand that script over to somebody and have a have a writer rework it or edit it. But they know that by having that bit of technology at their disposal, they get an awful lot of leverage over the workers to say, uh, well, this, the machine generated the original script. Uh, we're not going to pay full price anymore. Now, you use the term, Brian, worker, but not everyone would use that term. We had John Taplin on the show, another critic, much more of actually a critic of tech than you, who's based in LA and knows the movie industry inside out. He talked specifically about this and said, well, these people were earning 500 grand per script and now they're only going to earn 5,000. Uh, but this comes back to my question on whether the Luddites were aristocrats or what Marx called lumpen proletariat. Should we really care about the scriptwriter who used to earn half a mil per script and now is only going to earn five or 10,000? Won't that result in more scripts, more opportunity? Um, no, it won't, because there are only a handful of screenwriters who are commanding those wages. It, it, it goes, you know, for the it goes for SAG as well. It's a tiny percentage that are really making sort of the, the high level wages that you see bandied about in the press. I think I think it was SAG that 80 percent of their uh, of, of their union membership does not even meet sort of the the earnings threshold that required mm -hmm. to, to get health care. So most of them are most of them are not, you know, rolling in dough and it's not, you know, going to sort of level any playing field because it's already, you know, it's already been eroded over the years. Um, what it does instead is it takes away opportunities for more people to learn the trade. Right. So if you can automate that script uh, instead of having, you know, a novice or a journeyman scriptwriter, you know, try to, you know, learn the trade or, you know, or, or, or practice the craft of acting, you're eliminating basically a whole rung on the ladder that's really crucial work. Ted Chang, uh, the science fiction writer who's written a couple of great pieces in the yeah, New York. Yeah, he's a, he's a brilliant writer on this stuff. Yeah, he, he is. And that's one of the points that he makes that people are saying, oh, well, it's all, it's just automating the drudgery anyways. And Number one, a lot of people rely on that drudgery still to sort of, you know, pay the bills while they're learning the trade, but they're also learning the craft at the same time. So if you if you knock out that rung of the ladder, you're you're knocking out opportunity for people to sort of acquire the skills that they need to, to succeed in, in these fields. Um, I have gone to the picket line a number of times and most of the people I talk to, you know, are, are not uber successful showrunners or stars or but they they understand how important the work that they do get is and how important it is that that's fairly compensated so we got the equivalent of the worker um both in, as the precariat the uber driver or the the the, the hollywood script writer is going to be replaced or perhaps the teacher or writer or eventually lawyer and doctor all these people are going to get challenged is there an equivalent today to the other two players in, in, in the first narrative? Firstly, the state, the violent response. And secondly, the equivalent to a, to a Byron who romanticizes this struggle against the machine. Mm. First, I'll just like leap back there with one caveat. Back in the Luddite time, there was there was no one that would be even approaching uh, the level of like a successful scriptwriter on the on the Luddites. There were a few sympathetic sort of 
um, you know, merch. master craftsman. Type. Yeah, but even then, you're talking about somebody who would maybe be considered comfortably middle class. Um, the labor aristocracy that Marx is talking about was just they're like at the top of the food chain. They were the croppers. They smoothed the, the, the cloth. So they had a really important job that, you know, could either tank or knock up the value of, of a garment. So they had more power, but it was nothing compared to they were no one was none of them were rich. Anyways. OK, I take your point on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. So what I did see that was a little bit alarming as I was writing, um, I don't you know. I'm in California where we have a ballot system uh, where there's there's an element of direct democracy where uh, if you get enough signatures, you can put something on the ballot uh, for a state statewide um, election and you can you know, you can get a, a proposition passed into law that way. So while I was writing this book, one of the things that was happening is after a long time, a long struggle, a lot of organizing gig workers had finally um gotten a bill passed through uh through the legislative channels through through california's state assembly and senate to finally recognize them as employees that they could organize they could have minimum wages they could get benefits and all these kind of things the the gig companies did, uh, mounted a historic campaign to sort of turn overturn that law uh with something called prop 22 which happened here uh and they poured over 200 million dollars into this campaign right. uh, passed pretty easily but one of the things that and so basically it it enshrined their status as independent contractors not employees they don't get a lot of benefit they don't get a lot of benefits they agreed to some like half measures but they can't organize and this is the biggest thing the luddites could not organize so they were forced to take drastic action uh i'm not saying we're there yet at all but i'm watching as instead of trying to find ways to help the poor cloth workers uh parliament is uh, is just stripping away all the regulations, stripping away their ability to sort of, uh, you know, peacefully kind of uh, protect themselves or earn a, a meager income. And I'm watching the same thing, the same rights kind of being stripped away from uh, from gig workers uh, as, I, as I'm writing this. So that was a parallel that had me a little bit worried. But there's no there's nothing close to the, you know, the, a, a state as punitive as uh, as England's in the early 1800s, where they're willing to hang dozens of people for for property crimes, um, and there are, you know, there are there are a lot of sort of at least I would say Luddite sympathetic voices to answer the second part of your question emerging. Um, you know, we have a lot of popular culture that is basically a uh, you know a, a, a recasting or a rebooting or an updating of the, of the Frankenstein idea. I mean, the Terminator franchise is basically uh, a, Frankenstein, a Frankenstein story where you know, a rich corporation uh, unleashes an AI that sort of uh, recklessly they do so and it goes berserk and, and takes over the world and robot armies roam the streets. I mean, the same, uh, the same is true of the last Mission Impossible movie. I haven't actually seen that. Yeah, it's all AI. You know, rather than having evil Russians or even evil Arabs or even evil aliens, now we have evil AI. <laughs> yeah, I think the end of the yeah the Avengers movie. Uh, there's there's always been quite quite a lot of it. It makes for uh, um, you know a, a pretty good uh, a pretty good villain, and and it does speak to that sort of permanent layer of anxiety we have about this uh, encroaching sort of 
um, you know, automation and, and, and robotics and, and, and the rise of, uh, of technology in general is something that I would argue more for economic reasons um, unsettles us. You know, the way we channel that anxiety tends to be in ways like, oh, is it going to, you know, conquer us by force or is it going to replace us? But as part of the book, I spoke to a lot of AI historians and they all they pointed out that we don't start to see anxiety around AI or uh, it wasn't called AI at the time, but, you know, it was it was automation or mechanization or, you know, automata until the Industrial Revolution. So for hundreds of years, stretching back to Homer and even before, you know, automation is seen as this really cool, powerful thing that might solve a lot of problems. Um, you know, free, free labor, free defense for armies, all these things. And people seem to be pretty behind it. But once it starts to threaten somebody's ability to earn a living, that's when the anxiety really starts. And for 200 years, we have not shaken that anxiety because we still see technology developed and unleashed in much the same way as it was at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So finally, Brian, what lessons should it teach people who want to organize you noted that the luddites they're both their strength but also their weakness was that they're disorganized it was yeah. collective bargaining by riot and spontaneous riot at that occupy wasn't a success you compared the luddites with the occupy movement for the next wave the front lines of people who were most challenged by this whether they're teachers or lawyers or doctors or journalists or writers what should this teach them about standing up to the machine and protecting their livelihood in a way that isn't just simply reactionary? Yeah, well, it is going to start affecting a lot of workplaces. Um, I think that we should be getting prepared for that. I think the number one best way that you, in the short term that we, that you, that, that a worker or somebody who is even, you know, in, in a professional field can start to uh, begin to, to, to brace for some of this stuff is, you know, is, is organizing. You know, right now we're seeing at least some, you know, some success uh, in drawing red lines in, in workplaces that, that have been more organized. So the Luddites failed because they did not have a lot of tools uh available to them they didn't have democracy they couldn't organize i've said that stuff a bunch of times already they also faced these insurmountable uh pressures we don't you know face those kind of pressures we do have a democracy we do have a say in how we want these technologies to enter our lives we need to assert that more we need to assert our right for uh for democratic technologies we need to start asking where where tech, where where we can where where we might want to see technology help us, and where we might want to keep it out of our lives altogether, and that's one of the things that the Luddites empower us to do. Is if we see a use of a technology, you know, I think it's fully within the screenwriter's rights to say, we don't want this. We don't we don't want AI in our writing rooms. That's going to be our policy. That's a choice we've made about how we use this. So. That, that, that is something that can be fought for. It really helps if you have a union, if you have solidarity, if you can push back. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot harder if you're atomized and you're alone and you're watching 
uh, your you know clients that you used to do illustrations for uh, stop returning your calls. You don't have as many options. Uh, but we really need to sort of get these concerns, economic concerns, up to the policy level, up to the up to the federal level. You know, we're hearing all these. Uh, these hearings about, you know, establishing safety guardrails for AI. And that's great. Those are great concerns. But I think the most pressing issue related to AI is how it's going to affect our economy, how it's going to affect working people, how it's going to affect your job. So you got to get out there, get educated, learn what, if any, plans your company has to use AI and find out how you can offer input into that process of how it's deployed.